I've got a whole bag of shh. <laughs> That's a preemptive shh. You're listening to Cinepunked. This episode is Shagadelic. Hi, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and for the next hour, we're going to explore one of the icons of the 1990s, Austin Danger Powers. In the late 1990s, Mike Myers had established himself as a comic powerhouse. His six-year stint among the cast of Saturday Night Live had led to film success with Wayne's World and So I Married an Ex-Murderer. His 1997 film, Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery, would up the ante with Miter's writing, producing and starring in the dual roles of Austin Powers and his nemesis, Dr. Evil. Broadly viewed as a parody of the James Bond franchise and the spy genre, this was also a love letter to the comedy and culture of Britain that Myers had grown up with thanks to his British parents. Lifting the 1960s popular culture and slapping it into the 1990s allowed Myers an exploration of humour and sexuality that might have been denied a more contemporary-minded piece, its success measured in global box office and lasting cultural shorthand. I'm joined, as ever, by my CP colleagues, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And Ben Simpson. Hello. This is our second Mike Myers film we're talking about already. I'm, I'm surprised. Like, we, we haven't touched him for so long, and then we've got two in a, a matter of months. That's what she said. I, I, I feel we've already hit the tone of the episode. <laughs> um, Austin Powers. Yeah. Fans, not fans. Before we, before we, we, we kind of suggested doing this. Where, where, where were you sitting on the Austin Powers debate? I, <laughs> I like the Austin Powers movies. I didn't have strong feelings about the Austin Powers movies. I've seen all of them at the cinema. I was interested enough to see all of them at the cinema, and I liked them fine. Uh-huh. Um, I haven't watched them for quite some time. So when I came back and watched uh, Austin Powers: International Man of Mystery for the first time in God knows how many years for this, I thought I knew what I was watching. I thought Mike Myers, quite like him. It's never going to be as good as So I Married an Axe Murderer, but... And I was quite surprised by how off-putting I found the film. I didn't, I don't remember having that reaction to it. I don't remember finding so much of it so cringy. Um, and, oh God, to sound like a complete joy sucker. I don't think this format works at all in a post-Me Too era. That's all my joy sucked. Yeah, Sorry. I got more where that came from. Um, I, I I hold my hands up. I have been a fan since it since not even since it was in the cinema. Since I saw a teaser for it, um, I suspect watching the Big Breakfast back in must be ninety six, ninety seven, or ninety seven, and I think it was shots of Mike Myers um, doing the dance at the opening of the film, going through what what their version of Carnaby Street in London. <laughs> and I <laughs> just thought I like the look of this I like the sound of this 1960s spies yep I'm all in and I knew enough about Mike Myers to like Mike Myers I went to see it in the cinema um, which I recall being fairly empty but that was typical of the times I go to see the cinema and uh, I, I bought the soundtrack album um, for myself and then also bought a copy of it for my then girlfriend who um, didn't like it didn't like the movie. Didn't like the soundtrack. Like <laughs> she the soundtrack. apparently gave the soundtrack to her sister. And I, uh, in return, she had got me uh, Radiohead's OK Computer, which I quite liked. Um, I was disappointed she wasn't in Austin Powers, but I love that soundtrack. So I, I listened to that still. I mean, it's what, 23 years since that film came out. No way. It's not that long. It is 23 <laughs> years. <laughs> Holy crap. We're <laughs> really makes old. Me feel old. Yeah, we're, we're all really old. It's, it's just a sad thing that, you know, we are. Um, 23 years ago how did I have a girlfriend I don't know I don't have one now clearly my life has deteriorated um, but yeah I mean I, I, I love that film I listen to that on a regular basis even now I must have listened to it like five or six times in the last month um, it's still a favourite I love that film and going back to it was just a joy so I'm utterly biased I, I also <laughs> enjoy that film so um, what I don't know so well are the sequels. I, I rewatched all three back to back in preparation for this because I realised I didn't know uh, Spy Who Shagged Me and Goldmember very well. Um, but we'll concentrate today on Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. So 
I'm sitting in a room then with two mad fans and I'm sitting here with the very unpopular opinion that it's just not an appropriate way of dealing with sex and sexuality and um, female sexual desire and um, persistent little dickheads that won't take no for an answer. Um, I definitely see your point. But we, 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 we're also covering this one uh, for anyone who's just picked up this episode. Our last episode, we talked about the 1967 Casino Royale film and the Bond franchise as a whole. Um, and this is often seen in the context of being a parody of the Bond film. And, and certainly spy films generally. Um, arguably, none of those films are appropriate in this post-Me Too era. There's there's some very specific ways in which I think Austin Powers just makes me profoundly uncomfortable. Um, there's a sequence when they're on the jet, when uh, Powers and Vanessa Kensington have recently met, and he's decided they're going to have sex. And she's very much like, I'm really not going to shag you. Uh-huh. Um, and... They're on the plane, and I mean, again, I know everybody's going to accuse me of overanalyzing this. They're going to hate me for saying this, but he is in a position of relative power um, over her, and she's sitting there, and he's basically he's saying, "Shall we shag now, or shall we shag later?" And she says, "No, mm-hmm. we're not going to shag." And then he gets the bed out, and he leaps onto the bed, and he goes, "Come and sit beside me here, baby." Mm-hmm. No, I don't want to have sex with you. I'm really never going to have sex with you. And then he contrives to leap on her, and I'm just she has said no repeatedly. You are effectively who her superior this is sexual or harassment it's basically sexual assault and then she grins indulgently and I just my heart just sank and I thought that everything about this sequence is making me really uncomfortable this this is not funny this is awful what's happening and now we're being asked to collude with this that in fact she actually kind of did want to shag him all along she's just playing hard to get and I I just I, I just find this I know we use this word a lot I find this really problematic. Um, I know it was in a different era. Mm. Uh, 1990s is unbelievably 23 years ago. uh, And there was a different approach Mm -hmm. to this kind of sexual desire and how it's negotiated. Um, I think just for me, the fact that he persists, even though she said no repeatedly and clearly, Mm -hmm. is in itself really, really awful. Um, and then the fact that she just gives a knowing little wink and we're supposed to go, oh, right, OK, so she really did want it. She's just pretending that she didn't. I just, for me, I, I actually don't think I could watch that again. Oh. Mr. Powers! I will never have sex with you, ever. If you were the last man on Earth and I was the last woman on Earth and the future of the human race depends on our having sex simply for procreation, I still would not have sex with you. What's your point, Vanessa? Well, I, I guess the first thing to say is it's really <laughs> that hard. just killed the joy completely. I mean, I, I thought this was going to be a fun episode to do. Yeah, no, Apparently I wrecked not. it. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's, that's fucked forever getting Mike Myers on the show. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I was I said really nice things about him and so I married an axe murderer, which remains one of my favourite Mike Myers films of all times. I adore it. It's a completely different dynamic. And what I know what's, trying to, <clears throat> what, what's going on here. I know it's, it's aping a particular thing, but I don't remember that explicit lack of consent Featuring in James Bond, and maybe that's because I'm just not very familiar with the James Bond. When has James Bond or any spy ever asked the person that he's about to shag, is it okay if I shag you? That never happens. Have they ever turned around and said, no, I definitely don't want to do this, and he persists? Uh, No, right, okay. The guy's from, he's been frozen in time. Mm -hmm. He's come out of the 60s -hmm. where swingers was, that was the thing. That's Mm -hmm. what you did back in the 60s. You took loads of amounts of drugs. And you bucked all around you. Yes, right? and with, with a no... willing sexual partner. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Right, okay. Yes, he, well, what I would see what he did as um, on on the plane in that instant was uh, sort of flirt flirtation. You know, like, well, you could see it as that, right? But then later on, whenever they're out drinking, out in the town... And she's completely smashed, and he goes, no, Vanessa. Yes, look at you. (laughs) You're smashed. No, I'm not. You are. No, I'm not. I'm a sensible one. I'm always a designated driver. Kiss me. I can't, darling. Why not? Because you're drunk. It's not right. No, I'm not drunk. I'm just beginning to see what my mummy was talking about all those years ago. I can't. (sighs) Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 
you're smashed. Again, it we're supposed to right. see him as being some kind of good guy. So, so let let me interject before we, we before my colleagues have, <laughs> have the fisticuffs. Put down your weapons, Peria. Um, I think I think look, Ben, you, Rachel, what your your observation is completely right. Yeah, and in, in this in the era that we're now in, characters like that are harder to accept. Um, it, it's more problematic, definitely. Um. I suppose it's the same thing that I said when we were were talking about Casino Royale. We have to kind of look at it in a certain point in the context of the time that it's made in. Your observation, Ben, that yes, this is a character that is frozen in time, that he is from the 1960s. Part of the... the, I think the problem really is that part of the humour is drawn from the fact that you have somebody with these very, very outdated ideas being woken up 30 years later and in a way we are meant to in our perspective see there's this kind of endearing a bit like she does she kind of she she almost plays along with it because she appreciates that he is out of place out of time um and it is difficult we 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 do gradually come to think to her way of understanding i think a lot of the film we see from her perspective that you you sort of see that this is a guy who is completely lost who is struggling to cope with with what's changing around him um but also somebody who does have standards who who does accept that there's a point at which this isn't fun so where he does say i can't believe we're getting into this right at the start of the show mm-hmm. um he, he, he does say as you're quite right you know it's like no it's not right you're you're smashed and this yeah. this and he, he he completely walks away from that and and there's a whole sequence where he's where she's braided him and he's quite lonely and isolated because his vision of what the way things should be isn't how things are he is completely um adrift i guess but ultimately the two of them do come together mm-hmm. although it's okay because uh, if you've married. watched but if you watch the second one it's fine because she's a fanbot all along <laughs> she was a fanbot yeah as, as, as michael york's uh basil exposition says yeah we knew <laughs> um so it, it i mean actually i think i think that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, are we seeing parallels to something else already? <laughs> uh, I mean, the other problem, I, I think for me, there's a bigger problem in that I actually think the character regresses across the three films. I think he's far stronger and far more moral uh, in this than he is in Spy Who Shagged Me and Goldmember. By them, he, he really just doesn't seem to care that much. Um is much more retro in his uh, in his thinking. Although part of that may also be because he's in sort of travel time travel retro settings and stuff. Yeah, <sighs> yeah Rachel, you're right. So we can't do this episode. We're going to cut here. Really? I'm, I'm only joking, folks. We're going to carry <laughs> on. <laughs> yes, Rachel, you killed the episode. Good job. Well done, well Rachel. Done. The episode's we'll- dead now. <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to know what the response would be if this film was made today, which makes it interesting the fact that they keep on talking about doing a fourth. Yeah, and here's the thing, I don't think... But it would be different. Mm-hmm. There's there's nothing inherently wrong with that formula. There's mm-hmm. nothing inherently wrong with it. It's uh, it, it's just the issue of consent. Yeah. Um, I think the way that it's handled is probably more typical of how people do try and handle those situations. Um, certainly, uh, you know, there, there are lots of people who've been approached by somebody who, and both, all genders have been approached by people who they're not into, who are making passes at them, making it very, very obvious. And rather than create a scene, and this is particularly uh, in light of Me Too, and we've just had the, uh, when we're recording this, we're literally a couple of, a week away from uh, after the, the, the Harvey Weinstein trial uh, and its declaration. Um, so this stuff is, is very much in the forefront while we're recording. Um, I think often people do respond in a kind of tacit acknowledgement. We, we try and sort of say no, we, we will say no repeatedly, but in order to keep the peace, we accept more of that inappropriate behaviour than we probably should. I, I mean, I think that that's pretty much what has happened forever. I mean, am I, am I wrong in, the, in this sort of uh, assumption that we, we do? Certainly I can think of situations where Yes, believe it or not, folks, even I have been approached by people and I've I've sort of tried to be nicer about it, you know, and, and let them carry on talking to me even though they've been persistent and I'm not keen, you know, um, because that's easier than the fallout sometimes in my head and I'm not saying that's the right way to respond to it. Um, I guess the problem is with a character like him, you see that there is an arc of sorts, that he does become an endearing figure, but I also think that his character shifts from that from from sort of um being uh, inappropriate to trying to be more appropriate 
Yeah, and I mean, I'm not trying to argue that there's anything essentially wrong with um, Austin Parr's kind of sexual stance in general. Um, you know, he's coming from that, that 1960s era of free love and it's, he's accustomed to everybody just banging whenever they feel like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh, you know, that is a, a parody of... Well, it's also, you know, the, the, what's going on in Casino Royale, the mm-hmm. 1967 Casino Royale. It's a parody just in general of, of James Bond having loose sexual morale. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. It's that sequence in particular, which I just, I mean, it's the, the tone is completely wrong for me. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, that no, 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 I really mean yes uh, tone that's, that's being hinted at there. Um, and that's why he should keep per- pursuing her. He should be persistent because she doesn't really mean no. She really means yes. I mean, I, I don't think that we have to throw the entire film out mm-hmm. on the basis of one sequence that no longer holds up um, with modern sensibilities. But I do think that that sequence got it very wrong. I, I don't know that I have that I read that as her meaning no meaning yes. I think that um, he's such a buffoon with it. I mean, that's very obvious when he's picking up his kit and his penis pump extender, <laughs> you know, and, and he's, it's just, you know, it's it's not my baby. It's, just, it's not my bag. and But it clearly is. Um, so whilst he's doing that and she's already laughing away at his, his I think she's laughing at his inappropriateness, but also his, his complete, <laughs> his idea of sexuality and sexualization and embarrassment and everything else. And whenever he's doing that scene on the plane, yeah, we know that he's kind of edging things slightly further. And there is a bit of a, a sort of a, a, a tease there and he is persisting. But there's also he's persisting and, and trying to play it for laughs, which, again, you know, not saying that that is the right way to do it. But I think that her character is also saying that ridiculousness in the whole thing. I mean, as she said, it's never going to happen. If she is of that mindset that it's never going to happen, you can joke about it all you want. It ain't ever going to happen, and I don't think she's taking him seriously. Do you get the, the similarity between Casino Royale and that airplane scene? Because mm-hmm. that sequence is in Casino Royale. Yeah. So there With is the spinny bed and everything. So part of it as well is yes, I, I get that today that would possibly be a harder scene to sell. Um, although I actually suspect it probably still would would be be cleared by a studio. Do you think? Do you not yeah. think there'd be no. there would be a, a big pushback against that? Depends on the context. I think that um, I think if it was a straight if it was a straight film played straight, uh, we probably would go. Mm, um, and in a Bond film, maybe that would be more difficult. But again, you know, sex is used as a commodity within the spy networks as well. Um, that's how we see it. We don't see it in the way that we see other relationships. You know, we we know that they're basically know that they're trying to get information out of each other. Yeah, but I don't. I I don't see that as an issue of sex. I see that as an issue of consent. Mm. Um, and I think if we are saying that that wouldn't be treated mm. um, as a problematic sequence in a modern film, I think that's deeply depressing. And the thing is, I mean, this is actually as 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 madcap and as silly as it is it's actually quite an intelligent film mm-hmm. um it's this is i definitely definitely don't want to argue against this film as a whole um i just i was surprised to find that there was a sequence in there that i find so deeply troubling um because especially if you watch this film in close connection with Casino Royale, you actually start to get a sense of, of how intelligent Mike Myers is as a storyteller, mm-hmm. um, which is not necessarily, I think, a phrase that people would have would, would naturally um, bring to mind when talking about Austin Powers, International Man of Mystery. I, I guess I don't want to, to labour the whole the whole episode with, with a discussion of this one sequence, because yeah. I'm, 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 I'm very aware that anyone's come into this thought, Austin Powers, nice, happy, cheery, and we've gone quite... Quite dark. Quite dark. In- yes. Instantly. Instantly. Um, I just took it and I just dunked the tone right down. Uh, I, I guess we. All, I mean, this is the other reality about watching a film is that we all respond to them in our own way, and, and part of it is based on uh, life experiences, interactions we have with other people, our knowledge of other people's experiences. Um, also, sometimes in terms of what else we've seen, either side of it can all influence how we view a particular scene or a particular film. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, look, I'm quite happy to, to agree that it's it, it, that attitude of someone just pushing and pushing and pushing is an issue of consent, and that is definitely problematic, and that is something that we shouldn't endorse. Um, 
basically. Um, but I think it gets, a, I think that it probably got away with it and probably still gets away with it because it's done with a sense of fun and that it's very clear that she, she may find him funny, but she has no intention of sleeping with him. And I think that she still has control. I don't see her at that point as not having control within that sequence. She knows what's going on. She knows how the world works. He doesn't. And he's just woken up from a 30-year-old coma. The shrugs that Rachel is doing are not visible on radio. I think we're <laughs> going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Yeah. Um, listeners, you know, this is your point to interact with us and tell us what you think, because genuinely, I, I don't know. I would need to rewatch the film again, specifically looking at that <laughs> sequence. Um, yeah. When does watching a film um, on... <clears throat> See, I don't get that same sense uh -huh. um, from that scene, but oh. I don't know. Maybe it's because like, I don't care enough or something. I, I don't know. Possibly. Yeah. Possibly because you're a man. Yeah. You but, know, we don't experience the world in the same way that women do. Yeah. Um, and then that's not... that. That's just a fact. Like, I, I do understand the whole, you know, consent thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's extremely important. But it's a movie. And, like, if you look at all other movies shot in the past mm. with along a similar vein, mm. are you going to completely write off all those as well? Like, I think... Um I suppose it's because it's part of what we have set up to to, to talk about generally within the confines of, of sort of the cinepunk. Yeah, uh, we're always we do we do try and make these sort of observations when they're when they're relevant. Mm -hmm. um, I think watching stuff in the past, we, when we watch a film, we always watch anything within the context of our present. Mm -hmm. in, you know, we look at history through the eyes of the present, not the eyes of the time that it happens in. Mm -hmm. um, so we're always changing our, our views on it. And that's why you, sometimes you can watch. There are films that I have seen that I loved as a kid that I watch now and I go, I'm yeah. really not comfortable with this anymore. There's, there's plenty of those ones. I remember queuing around the block to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark when I was a kid and I saw it three times in the cinema with my dad and I loved it every single time and I just, it was it was literally, I became obsessed with Indiana Jones on the back of this film. I had all the Indiana Jones stuff and I had the books and I saw all the other movies and then I came back to it and rewatched it about 20 years later and I went, oh God, oh, this isn't what I remember at all. Wow, this film's kind of racist. Um, well, I think we can still agree that Nazis are bad. Yeah, but this is um, uh, Temple of Doom tonight. Which one did I say? Raiders of the Lost Ark. I didn't mean Raiders of the Lost Ark. I'm not actually that old. It's Temple of Doom. Um, no, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, no, great. Still great. Still holds up. I don't um, think I've seen it. And I, I love The Last Crusade. And I don't care who says You've it. You've never seen a single Indiana Jones film? <gasps> well. Don't Listen start with the fourth one. Uh, listeners, Just you, pretend you, that doesn't exist. You can already tell what's coming up on the show <laughs> in the next few months. <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it, our relationship with cinema and with films is complicated and it changes constantly. Yeah. You know, as I said to you, we, we, for anyone who's listening in, we've just, we're, we're, we're doing four back-to-back -back films um, yeah. in, in this session. We've watched them back-to-back. -back. That will change our relationship with each of those films mm -hmm. because it's influenced by everything that's around that. Whereas if we had watched um, this and Casino Royale a year apart, that changes because there's all sorts of other things we'll see in between those two. Yeah. You watch the two of them back to back and you see a lot of comparisons. Oh yeah, I see a lot of similarities. Um, so it it is difficult and it does mean that occasionally we watch stuff and we go, uh, that that's not okay anymore. Mm. Um, and the Bond films and, and parodies of them are a really good way of highlighting the relationships between men and women and, and films and, and how one-sided and how the abuse of power is, is just something that's fed into us. Like, I think we, we are kind of fed this idea that <sighs> male heroes are kind of sex pot sex gods and, and women just are secondary and have no valid opinions of their own. Yeah, these I mean, films. But that's, that's something the film's playing with anyway, mm -hmm. is the idea. I mean, it actually has to be spelled out at one point by Mimi Rogers, who should definitely get more work. I love her. Um, and she, she says to, to her daughter, well, you know, back in the 1960s, you could still be a sex symbol and have bad teeth um, uh, because apparently there's absolutely no way that anybody could find him attractive. And I mean, I... I, he, it's playing with that 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 sort of image of the of the hero and um, 
and and sort of this idea of what is sort of conventional. I mean, James Bond is supposed to be this very classically suave, dripping with machismo, um, lady killing kind of sexual magnetism, whatever. Mm. Um, and Sir Austin Powers comes up with his sort of his his velour jackets and his ruffled cravats and. and I don't even know what these items of clothing are called, by the way. Um, so it's, and, it's velvet, it's not velour. Is it? I don't know. Um, Robert knows he has Robert, many velvet Yes, I, I was going to say, if anybody was going to be able to correct me on this, and what do you call the ruffles, Robert? I mean, ruff, you can call ruffles? it ruffle. Ruffle, okay. that's definitely a ruffled shirt, yeah. That's good. I, thank you for your sartorial input there. That's all right. Um, and uh, the idea is that, you know, you're supposed to look at him and go, well, who finds him attractive? But but he he is this sort of parody of masculinity. He he, yeah. he wears the necklace with the male symbol on it. You know, this is like this idea that he is, a, I suppose, a, a totem of, of male power. In, in a way, he is meant to be super attractive and super sexy. And I, I guess what comes through... Actually, in some respects, I think Austin Powers is a great role model in terms of like um, being uh, someone who is, as they draw attention to the film, he is not conventionally an attractive hero. He's not a looker, but no. he's got confidence. He's got confidence. And, and, and he believes in himself. And that's the important thing. That's yeah. where the attraction comes. So when we come to the second film, when he loses his mojo, um, you know, he's losing that confidence in himself and as a character, as a person, he becomes less attractive because he's just lost that confidence. There is actually a subtext there that, that's quite important. Um, and, you know, as as a geeky as a geeky teenager. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit sad that he gets his teeth fixed at the end. He bows to that, that pressure to look conventionally yeah. whatever. I mean, he still keeps the suits and stuff, so that's fine. But mm-hmm. but he gets the And I just, I mean, everybody's so nasty about the teeth and snarky all the way through um, in a way that is very, very un-British, by the way, as well. <laughs> like, trying to do a, a send-up of British. British people would never turn around to somebody else and go, your teeth are rubbish there. No. Um, just, we wouldn't even... We would very specifically not notice it, um, but yeah, I was a w- I was a wee bit sad when the film we made him get teeth fixed. We just wouldn't say. We just wouldn't say. Yeah, yeah. No, that's rude. Yes, it's rude. You know, it's just not what we would do at all. Um, but yeah, I was a bit sad when he um, when the film made him sort of take on that that sort of conventional signifier of attractiveness. I suppose the idea as well is that he is modernizing in some way. That he is gradually coming to terms with the world in which he lives. Which is, yeah. you know, he has to be. He's still out of place completely, but he is more slightly less out of place than he was. You know, the fact that this is a film set in Britain but shot in California maybe has something to do with that as well. Is it the second film where they're driving along the California coastline and he turns to them? Isn't it amazing how uh, rural Britain looks nothing whatsoever like Southern California? Yeah. That's one of my favourite lines. <laughs> Let's talk about Doctor Evil. Doctor Evil's kind of one of my favourite Mike Myers characters. I mean, this is this is never going to be my favourite Mike Myers film, so he's one of my favourite Mike Myers characters, and I don't know why. That's not really talking about, about Doctor Evil. That's, that's that's very kind of like I like him, but I don't know why. That's, that's <laughs> I need more meat. Ben quotable, very very quotable. And I know everybody quotes Austin Powers all the time, but Doctor Evil's quotes are more funny to me. Uh, yeah, I would agree with you there. I I, I love Doctor Evil. I think he's great. Oh my gosh, I'm not getting enough. <laughs> well, it's it's part of it is is to do with I think the the parody is a bit more well, which, obvious. Which Bond, he's Blofeld. 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 Yeah. Blofeld. Um, which version of Blofeld is is up for up for grabs? Um, it's quite close to Donald Pleasant's version. It's the cat thing. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's big. It's a big white pussy in in most of the Bond films. Right. I haven't seen enough Bond films to even, like, oh, yeah. I wouldn't even get that reference. Mr. Bigglesworth. Mr. Bigglesworth. Um, yeah, no, that's, that's a very definite, it, I mean, and the scar as well, it, it, it's just a straight lift from the James Bond films. <clears throat> even the way he talks, or or is that? Um, that is a slight, uh, yeah, a slight of. variation, yeah, yeah. It's not really uh, quite, I think it's just him overdoing it. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, it's, it's a straight lift. Just completely. I mean, at, at the risk of sucking the joy out of the room again. <laughs> Yay! I, I'm, I'm struggling to get my joy back, and I came in here <laughs> expecting to lose. Here we go. Let's spiral down again. Oh. Um, I, I think that 
it's part of the, what I enjoy about Doctor Evil, and I realise that this is not what other people are going to be enjoying about Doctor Evil, is just the way it's another way of interrogating masculinity. Um, but I find that funnier. Please explain. Well, it's it's the he's he's put in this position of, of enormous power. I mean, mm. he's in control of the world. He's doing this very masculine oriented operation, but he is coded effeminate in absolutely everything so it's that very classic kind of male female coding that that villains go through i think i mean clearly that's what's going on in most of the bond stuff Mm. anyway um and the the affiliation with the cat and the the very sort of particular way of doing things and the the sort of the effete little finger to the lip type of thing (laughs) um and the fact that you know he's he he is given this kind of reproductive capacity but at least in the initial film we are given to believe that he has he has artificial created this this child mm-hmm. um, so again even that signifier of masculinity is taken away from him um, and, and yet he retains this enormous power and he's very much more suave and very much more sophisticated and very much more in control of things than Austin Powers Patch me through to the United Nations Security Secret Meeting Room Gentlemen my name is Dr. Evil In a little while you'll notice that the Kreplakistani warhead has gone missing if you want it back, you're going to have to pay me one million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. One hundred billion dollars. <laughs> Gentlemen, silence. Now, Mr. Evil. Dr. Evil. I didn't spend six years in evil medical school to be called Mr. Thank you very much. Is there something about just being a villain that means that you just don't give a shit and therefore it's easier to keep control? He doesn't have to be liked. He just has to wield power and terror, whereas Austin has to kind of function in the world. Dr. Evil, by its very nature, is a separate figure. Yeah, but if you look at it, the James Bond things, I mean, James Bond's pretty antisocial, except when he's banging people. Mm. Yeah. Um, it's a wonder James Bond's a good spy, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's Dr. Evil's much more uh, closely affiliated with weaponry as well. I mean, Austin Powers has his, his little tiny gun. Mm-hmm. Um, Vanessa has a bigger gun than Austin Powers. <laughs> um, I think that's signifying something. Yeah. Especially with the, uh-huh. the cock true. pump. Yes. <laughs> this whole thing is one big long interrogation of masculinity. And if that doesn't suck the joy straight out of it, you know, my work here is not even nearly done. So as, as, I, as I said earlier, where we disagree is that Vanessa actually has the power for most of the film. She is the one that ultimately is, is the... She saves his ass a load of time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she never loses her cool. Yeah. Even when she loses her cool, she doesn't lose her cool. Um, she's, she's very classy, sophisticated. And I had a poster of the two of them on my wall. For years, of course you did. <laughs> Still haven't. <laughs> Just don't have it on my wall these days. Yeah, yeah I mean Elizabeth Hurley is is you know a, a great Bond girl. Yeah, gotta be honest. Uh, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I think that's probably the role she was born to play. Would have probably made a better Emma Peel than Uma Thurman did. The, I'm not going to argue film. with that. Um, she just, for me, looks the part. I mean, and and she signs the part, and she has that that sort of class and that poise. Yeah. Mm. She has that very buttoned-up British um, elegance to her. At ease, boys. Austin, I want to show you something. We're going to outfit you with this. It looks like a watch, but in fact, it's a geosynchronous positioning device. Very shagadelic. And then there's this. Okay, let me guess. The floss is garrote wire, the toothpaste is plastic explosives, and the toothbrush is the detonation device. No, actually. Well, since you've been frozen, there have been fabulous advances in the field of dentistry. What do you mean? <laughs> Nothing. An upper, upper class. Uh, an actress who I think has been probably derided more as being Hugh Grant's girlfriend at the time mm-hmm. than, than actually recognised for her own ability. Hugh Grant. Do you Grant? She was famous for the safety pin dress before she was famous for anything else. Turning up with a Hugh Grant's arm on a dress made out of safety pins. No, don't. You, no? No, you, you I do not recall. It's fair enough. You're, you're a bit younger. Yeah. You might be blessed in these things. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not sure she is a great actress. 
She does this part just the way it should be, though. This part was the right role for her. Mm-hmm. Um, it was exactly the right role for her. It I plays to all her strengths. Anything else? So. Um, I think about the only other thing I'm aware of her doing was Bedazzled. She did the remake of it. She was quite good in that too, actually. To be fair, mm. um, she did a lot of kind of low budget schlock before mm. Hugh Grant hit the big time. I mean, it was basically she she was catapulted into fame on the back of being his girlfriend, which yeah, mm. I don't know. Nineties was a strange time. Okay, so that, that's that's. Tease out a little bit more about the the references into Austin Powers because now I mean I think people come into this expecting it just to be a parody of Bond films, but it's not. It's 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 actually looking back to a lot more. Yeah, it's nearly um, a complete copy of Casino Royale <laughs> with a more coherent coherent plot, plot and <laughs> with an actual plot. Yeah. Um, Lots of lots of things have been taken out of that film and stuck into Austin Powers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you think about um, Doctor Evil, um, you know, escaping in a rocket and all that, and you know the unidentified flying object could be, you know, mm-hmm. the, the big boy and big boy, yeah. and then coming down and then um, they lose it and all. Uh-huh. It, it's, Yes. Commander Gilmore? Speaking. Commander, this is Ritter in Southwest Com 3. We have a potential bogey with erratic vectoring and unorthodox entry angle. What are you saying, son? Well, it appears to be in the shape of a big boy. Good God. He's back. Well, in many ways, the big boy never left, sir. He's always offered the same high-quality meals at competitive prices. Shut up. Shall I scramble TAC HQ for an intercept? What's its current position? Well, I'm presently tracking it over Nevada. Oh, my God. The big boy's gone. Listen, son. I want you to forget what you saw here today. Have you seen that as the space rocket in, in Casino Royale? The, the, yeah, the, the UFO. stupid UFO, <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You know, um, I mean, even even Woody Allen's Jimmy Bond, I mean, he his, he's dressed basically in the Blofeld outfit. It's the same thing, which, again, uh, obviously Dr. Evil wears. It's the, the Nehru jacket, you know, the, the, the sort of the colourless blazer. Yeah. Um, very, very straight lines, very, very kind of plain, dull colours. Um, the only thing Woody Allen's missing is the, the, the pussycat, really. Yeah. I think finding out, um, the, the reading about the story of how Mike Myers came to create the franchise makes so much of it make more sense. Mm-hmm. So apparently he's driving along um, in his car and suddenly thinks to himself, what happened to all the swingers? Mm-hmm. Um, and being a mad fan of the 1967 Casino Royale, this kind of gets sort of twisted and, and melded into the Austin Powers. I mean, Austin Powers is... It, it is a parody of Bond and there's so many elements of Bond in it, but it's a parody of Casino Royale Bond before it's a parody of straight Bond. Yeah. Um, and it is effectively a swinger film. How, how can you have a parody of a parodying? I mean, because that's essentially what this is, because the Casino Royale film is not a straight Bond film. So where do you draw the line between a spoof and a parody then? I, I don't know. I think this is a homage Rather than a parody, I think this is a homage to Casino Royale okay. in that way of thinking. This is this is actually, it, it's not trying to make fun of that. It's no. actually just embracing that and adapting it again. It's a joy, yeah. This is almost an extension of it. It's kind of like uh, what, what the Orville is to uh, Star Trek, original yeah. series and next gen. Yeah, there's it's there's there's sort of gentle, loving mm-hmm. ribbing going on. Well, I mean, um, they, they, they but just, it comes from a place of deep love. The thing is, though, they're, they're borrowing huge elements of it, and they're not even filtering it through any kind of parody at all. It's like literally, this is just how it was. I mean, in terms of your list, uh, I mean, the song that supposedly he was listening to in the car was was the, the look of love, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. literally the theme song from, from uh, Casino, Casino Royale. Royale. Yeah. And so, then he, he has that. What is it? Hits. Uh, Burt Bacharach? Burt Bacharach. Yeah. Yeah, Burt Burt appears in each of the three films. He writes, he has some of his music is in each of the films. It's a nice little nod. Burt Bacharach is kind of the the voice of the 60s, you know, the the songwriter of the 60s in many ways. Um, He he is. I mean, he's the guy that you shagged to in the 60s, isn't he? 
basically. I, I will try shagging to him in my 60s. I mean, there you go. That, yeah. that might be as close as nice I'm ever going to get. Nice, nice <laughs> gentle rhythm for you. you know, you've got to think about your heart in your 60s, you know. Uh, and your hips. <laughs> I, I, I feel I've just learned far too much about you, Rachel, in this last 30 seconds. I'm in my 40s. You bugger off. <laughs> Yeah, you're practicing. Um, so, I mean, there's that. There's, there's Austin Powers' outfit. Uh, you know, it's amalgamation. I mean, the character itself is an amalgamation of several influences. So it should be very obvious now to you that David Niven's version of James Bond is a huge tutorial influence on the James uh, on the Austin Powers. It's that blue velvet jacket, which is very definitely a nod back oh, to... Oh, you know, I didn't get that at all. You never noticed that? I didn't get that. The, oh, the okay, ca- that makes sense. I get sense. lost with all these actors' names. Who? Um, David Niven in Casino Royale. The, the OG James Bond. Sir James Bond. Just say Sir James. Sir James. Right, okay, yeah, yeah. Sir James is... I mean, Sir James wears basically the same outfit. He's got the ruffles. He's got the blue suit. I mean, this is very definitely a nod... Uh, in Austin Powers' primary costume in the film. Uh, there's also uh, influences of the Matt Helm films with Dean Martin, which you maybe don't know. No. Well worth having a look at. And um, Jason King, uh, the the TV character played by Peter Wingard in Department S and Jason King on ITC. I just Again. love your, your encyclopedic nerdish knowledge here. This is wonderful. <laughs> Well, there's other bits and pieces as well. I mean, one of the one of the theme one of the songs that does get played in the film is uh, "Secret Agent Man," which was the theme tune to the uh, the Patrick McGowan series "Danger Man" when it was aired in the states. Secret Agent Man, Secret Agent Man, they've given you a number and taken away your name. Which I mean, that, that song always to me sounds like it is taking the piss. But no, it's, it, it's, it's it's real, isn't it? It's genuine. It, it, was, it believes it, what it's saying. Oh yeah, no, totally. It was it was for a spy series that was played straight. So it was the, the the series that led into the prisoner, um, with Patrick McGowan, uh, and it was only used in the United States because they need everything sort of like rammed through to them. Every here, it was a much more generic kind of well, not generic, but it was an instrumental. Um, there are lots and lots of nice little references that, to that, to the era. You know, Nan- the Nancy Sinatra. These are the latest words an Android replicant technology. Lethal, efficient, brutal. No man can resist their charm. Send in the guys! And that's just what they'll do. Kill these women. These boots are gonna walk all over you. Oh yes, you know, yeah. As well, you know, it's, it's all these nice little bits that come together. Yeah. Even the, the teeny tiny little um, tinfoil outfits that they're wearing when they're driving the, the little car. The little car. Incidentally, that that sequence where he's trying to reverse his way out of the tunnel. <laughs> I mean, that that that, that just a uh, brilliant. That it's pure brilliance. Yeah. I, I, funny enough, I mean, that clearly is such a, a an iconic moment. Yeah. I mean, of all the iconic moments, that is one of the more unusual ones. But I was um, out with a friend the other night, and she was no. parking her car. And she referenced the parking of the car yeah. like the Austin Powers movie because that's how bad it was. Yeah. Or how well, good. One of the guy getting run over by the... Yeah. The steamroller steam very, yeah. very slowly. Yeah. yeah. Just standing there. Get out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was sorry to say that it wasn't in um, International Man of Mystery, but I won't talk about it anyway because yeah. I couldn't remember which one it was from until I rewatched. But the the sequence where everybody, you know, the, the bad guys get killed and then they flash back to, they, they, they cut to, sorry, um, the sequence where they're talking about what wonderful guys they were and, you know, good family guys. And I loved that. I mean, that's the sort of observational stuff that mm. I, I want from, from parody and spoof. Not the zaniness just kind of wearies me after a while, but that kind of observational stuff where they go, actually, yeah, the body kind here is genuine people. Um, and yeah, I, I, that's that's... That's what I'm and, and the bit where he's trying to reverse park his way out of a tunnel. <laughs> I I missed all those bits on the version that I. It's not in the first yeah, one. I think it, it must be in the second or the third one. I can't remember. It does which. get very confusing when you've seen them. They all yeah. sort of feel like the yeah. same thing in many ways, or certainly all the best bits seem to feel like they're the same. Yeah. Um. You know, it's like we don't even have Mini Me in the first one. No, yeah. I know. I I missed him. You know, and and that seems like no. That seems like such an like an important part of the Austin Powers franchise. Mm-hmm. 
But he was not there at the start. He only comes along later on. Yeah. It's it's Yeah, no, I can I can see why Scott has such a complex because Mini Me is objectively <laughs> a much better character than Scott. <laughs> Uh, I mean, if we're we're talking about the, the 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 franchise as a whole, and and spoilers for anyone who doesn't hasn't seen it, um, it preempts the Daniel Craig Bond films rather nicely. Does it? Yeah. Does it? Uh huh. So by the end of Goldmember, we discover that Doctor Evil and Austin Powers are brothers. Oh yeah, yeah. Which I swear they've lifted um, for 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 the Bond films because um, Blofeld. It's played by Christopher Christopher Waltz, isn't it? And uh, James Bond are half brothers. They're the same. So what did that pre? Austin Powers gets there first. Because ah. mm-hmm. so, that was never part of the original mythology within the films of the books. That's something that has come along afterwards. Yeah. So do you, arguably, you have a point where the films that are parodying the Bond films are then influencing the Bond films. Yeah. Which is a really interesting place mm. to be. Yeah. It's not the only example. I'm struggling to remember what, what I'm trying to talk about here, but it's not the only example of that happening, is it? No, I think there's a few others, and I yeah. can't think off the top of my head can't which think ones they are. No. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a, it's a fun little film. I, 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 like, I have a lot of affection for it. I love that it, it, it's sense of parody, and problematic or not, as Austin Powers' relationship with, with women in the world is, I mean, I still get a lot of joy out of it. Uh, I mean... That that whole sequence with the um, with them having their breakfast in bed. Mm. Yeah, I mean that, that feels that that's lifted from a different film. It feels like um, it, it doesn't. It's not that it feels like it's inappropriate there. I mean, obviously, it's it's very much appropriate with the dick and boob jokes, but um, it it just it feels like it's from a a, a, a oh, and gentler. The, the when he wakes up and he's got the champagne and he's walking about naked. That's the one. Yeah, gentler nineteen sixties British sex comedy. That's what that feels like. You yeah, know, so I, it almost feel like someone's going, "Oh, matron." Yeah, well, I, I think what it's doing there is it's just making very, very clear the, the what, what we've basically been talking about and watching the whole film. We know that it's basically a sex film. Um, it just can't say it at that point. They, it's very, very clear in two and three. You know, this by who shagged me. Gold member. I mean, we 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 have. Re- I think the only problem is they've reduced it to just knob jokes by that point. See, um, was this in in uh, Austin Powers two? You know, uh, whenever they they see the thing on the radiator or the, the radiator, the radar. Oh yes, oh, the big boy, yeah, it's when the big boy yes, returns. Johnson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that in, that in the second one? That's is the second, second one. one. Yeah. yeah. See, I thought it was going to be in the first one. I was like, saw saw it, and they did that bit. Um, I was disappointed that it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Though that, that so much of it just feels that, that the three films almost feel like they're one film, uh-huh. and that you you can't actually sort Separate of adjust them. your expectations as to which film has which bit in it. Yeah, it probably says an awful lot about the way that they've created it. That the whole world actually does feel consistent because yeah. if, if you know, with the the actual James Bond films, they often feel like very different mm. films. Well, there's only five years between the, the films, First, you know. Yeah. So 1997, 1999, and 2002. So you know they they are so so closely spaced mm-hmm. it's not like there was huge amounts and I, I don't know you can correct me if I'm wrong here but I'm assuming Mike Myers had his usual level of, of sort of authorial control um, well, well I mean he's a, he's one of the producers he's one of the writers on it yeah um, along with Alex Demi Moore as the so producer so the, the overall oh, right okay uh, but, the, but the overall sort of tone and theme mm-hmm. and and sort of creative impulse and the narrative thing is very much controlled by the creator the the, yeah. the sort of the original creator so yeah i mean it makes sense that they they feel very streamlined mm-hmm. you know it's not like you have a committee of of you know 17 different people that changes weekly sitting down and brainstorming what would happen next in austin powers no this mm-hmm. is somebody who understands the character created originated the character following it all the way through the three films mm-hmm. yeah no completely <gasps> We've got a lot of work to do. Someone help me. I, I'm still alive, only I'm very badly burned. Some of you I know, some of you I'm meeting for the first time. Uh-huh. Hello, sir. Anyone? Can someone call an ambulance? I'm in quite a lot of pain. Rachel, what's got you so excited? <laughs> Will Ferrell was Mustafa. I totally didn't see that. How of course he, he was. How did you not see I that? I don't know. 
I don't. I didn't really know who Will Ferrell was when I, I watched it the first time, okay. and I didn't. I you didn't, know who he is now, right? Yeah, but I didn't. It, my makeup must have been really good. I, I don't know. Are we okay with Will Ferrell in this film? Yeah, yeah. I, I thought he didn't have long enough of a role to be honest because I think I, I like Will Ferrell I like Will Ferrell too I mean, I'm always okay with him being in films I mean having raised objections to the, the, the consent non-consent sex scene I mean we'll not talk about Will Ferrell blacking up not well I mean essentially he is blacking up as an Arab you know it may not be dark dark brown but he is blacking up is that still appropriate in 2020 could, could just be a, a tan like look at Donald Trump and his <laughs> Orange. Uh, he's he's playing a character thing. called yeah. Mustafa who yeah. wears a fez. It is a very definite. Yeah, uh, well, if we're going to go down this route, we're going to have him. to talk about a lot of well, stuff. I mean, but, but, this is the, but this is kind of the whole point. Yeah. Is like you know, you raised the, 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 the very valid issue earlier on in the show, right? Yeah. So we now have a character here, and and we are willing to accept an awful lot of stuff whenever it's put through the prism of comedy. I'm glad you're killing the joy now, and not me. More about Casino Royale. Whenever your man. Um, Peter, Peter Sellers. Yeah, he's doing all the dress up stuff. Yeah, and he's. Well, and, the, then, and then at the at the scene where he pretends to speak like a. a, a oh, does the accents? The yeah. accents of the what I'm assuming is the Chinese and the, mm-hmm. um, some person from in around India. <laughs> Sort of. You'll be very familiar with most of those voices from listening to the Goon Show, yes, anyway. Yeah. Enough, I, That's I, I, kind of Peter Sellers' thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I was chatting to uh, to, to, to our friend um, Rob Ross the other week, and, uh, and I think Tony Slattery as well. And we were talking about Peter Sellers and his films, and, and I mentioned the party, the party, which is you know, it's hailed still today as a great, wonderful. Uh, iconic kind of comedy performance, but he blacks up as an Indian in that film, and nowadays that that just does not sit well at all. But the point is, is that I do think that we allow a lot more of what we would, in inverted commas, call problematic uh, portrayals whenever we do them through the lens of a comedy production. You know, I'm interested, genuinely interested on your take on that. Well, I think there's, there's a difference between knowingly trying to point up something as problematic, which I can't make the argument that Will Ferrell's doing that with Mustafa at all. But I can make the argument in other cases. I mm-hmm. mean, I'm thinking particularly of um, uh, Tropic Thunder. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I <laughs> mean, that, You've seen that, Ben? Oh, yeah, I like that film. <laughs> I love that film. Um, and, I mean, that's, that's, that's an actor blacking up, but doing it to make a point uh-huh. about actors justifying and their, their self-justificatory narratives and, and yeah. that, that big ego. I can't make that case for Will Ferrell as Mustafa in, in Austin Powers. Does, um, does it matter that he... That, I mean, he's blacked up because he's playing that character. We know that it's a parody of that, that, that kind and that type, and it's a generic one. Is that not a character from... From a Bond film? From a Bond film? Not necessarily. So. I mean, let's be honest, in the James Bond films, even Sean Connery blacks up. I mean, James Bond films are not known for their sympathetic trial of non- no. portrayal of non-white people. He, he dresses but, as a Chinese man in You Only Live uh, Twice, which came out the same year as, uh, as Casino Royale, and complete with all the, the dark coloured makeup and the slanty eyes and everything. It's, 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 it's cringe, to say the least. So, I mean, I, I mean in a sense... Gosh, I haven't killed the mood again. <laughs> yes, thank God it's not just me. But it's, but, but I mean, the, the, this is not the conversation that I expected us no. to have. But these are very valid questions that yeah. we have to ask ourselves. Is that actually, I mean, do we allow ourselves to get worked up about the fact that he's playing this character that no. is essentially an ethnic stereotype? Or do we just accept that he is a character playing an ethnic stereotype? He happens to be a white actor that's put some makeup on and we know that we're not supposed to take it seriously. This isn't a case of an actor playing an authentic. I would say give it a bye ball. Because it's supposed to be funny. Rachel. Oh, dear. I haven't had enough time to think about this. You didn't give me any time to think about the previous statement, so... Well, you won't let me talk about things in advance with you. Um, Oh, dear. I... My... It clearly didn't... It didn't bug you while you were watching it. It didn't bug me while I was watching it. You're a bad... you didn't even know... (laughs) No, I didn't know it was Will Ferrell. You thought Um, it was a genuine Arab. I... You're a bad person. I know. I did, and I am, and I definitely am now. Um, Yeah, I mean... I, I, I haven't got a coherent thought process on this. I think if I'm going to be consistent with my outrage, 
I'm going to have to be outraged by this as well, aren't I? But secretly Shit. you're not. I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't really understand my response to this because that is problematic. It is problematic. There's no way around that. See, I, I, I think that there is possibly still an argument to be made within comedy. And, and these films do it an awful lot. They do play on, on, on stereotypes. They do play on extreme characters. That because we know that it's not straight, because we know that it's play for laughs, we, we kind of know that it's not real. Yeah. It becomes kind of, access, kind of acceptable. The world laughed at Sasha Baron Cohen when he played Borat. Which is clearly an ethnic stereotype yeah. that was not appropriate, and and if you actually that, sit and analyse it, that no. country didn't appreciate. No, that. I, no certainly not. Um, and particularly, I mean, I, I, again, I, I thought Borat was doing some clever stuff, and I still think Borat was doing some clever stuff. It is, but ultimately, that character itself, I mean, and and the some of the stuff that he's exploring mm-hmm. with that, he's not the right person to be exploring that. It's a, it, this is where it raises huge, huge questions for us. Who knew that this was going to be the lens that, that we'd be looking at this from? Uh, oh, goodness, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> City punk ruining comedy since mm. 2020. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sticking on again when I go home, right? You know, <laughs> watch it again. I, I, I think the, the reality is that the vast majority of the audience will know that these, these, these things are problems and they're still going to sit and laugh because we have, we're able to not only suspend our disbelief, but also we're able to, to differentiate between. Um, it's obviously not. It'd be different if it was meant to be taken seriously. Yeah, I think context is a, a, a huge important part. I, I, honestly, I, I think so. Um, I I think that we have to to regard all audiences globally as as having enough sophistication and intelligence to be able to differentiate every. Um, we try not to do it in our mainstream cinema, but these these characters and these portrayals and these stereotypes do still exist. I mean, this film, this series is not keen on stereotypes. Uh, I mean, someone like Fat Bastard, yeah, you know, which I now see having watched Casino Royale again as a lift from the Casino Royale films because we got another Piper. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yes. <laughs> Yeah, you're so true. Yeah. I just assumed that was because Mike Myers likes doing a Scottish accent. Well, I think it possibly is. Although there's also a really bad Scottish accent in Casino Royale. There are several really bad Scottish you know, with, accents with, with, with in the, Casino with Royale. With the Russian female spy. In I fact, mean, every single Scottish accent in Casino Royale is bad. Russian female pa- par- spy? Apart from the one... Oh, is she French? They're all French. Apart from the... Uh, there is one genuine Scottish accent in Casino Royale. It's the rather haggard-looking gentleman who he meets at the car wash. He's Scottish. Okay. All right, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, so there, there, we, we've got the Pipers in Casino Royale. I'm pretty sure that Fat Bastard is another lift from Casino Royale. Yeah. Um, you know, but he is not someone that we can kind of look at and, and kind of say this is a great, you know, this, this is again, it's a, it's a mocking of, of, of one's physicality. Yeah. I mean, that is just a series of fat jokes. Yeah. I think, did you say this whenever we did uh, Swearing Married and Axe Murder, that, that, that there is an issue with, with sort of size within... Mike Myers' films or was that something else? I may have done. It's a long time ago. <laughs> I don't remember what happened this morning. Then there's the mole thing. Merly, 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 merly. I, I, I sat, to be honest, that caused me more upset than anything else I watched during the entire three films was the mole sequence because it was just something that felt so personal and, and so and, and I am a mole individual. Yeah. I'm blessed that I don't have a big hairy mole right on my cheek. Yeah. Um, but I have a lot of moles, and I, t- I t- took that to heart. I didn't. I have moles too, but I just... But it just seems like such a lazy... It seemed like such a lazy bit of humour for, for me. And I, like, I liked yeah. it. Well, you see, I, that's that, I think, is where I do have the most problem problematic reading of... I think sometimes the humour is just lazy. Uh-huh. Um, it's lazy and it's unkind. Yes. And I think you can be funny you can be sharp you can be biting you uh, can be you can be mean but don't be unkind but don't be unkind it's a, it's all about punching down isn't it there's a lot of that within this this franchise i yeah. mean between fat bastards although some great lines from him um you know yeah and a great dissection of the psychology of, of why one's fat yeah getting frisky are we i'm, I'm 
of, of, of fat because they eat and they eat because you know and yeah. the Martins and the Chinese phone <laughs> which was surprisingly <laughs> touching that that sequence it's, where he talks about why he overeats yeah. um, and then I mean obviously undermined almost immediately because you can't have that kind of beat and then not hit it with a comedy beat mm-hmm. in, a, in a comedy film of that nature but surprisingly touching which kind of sits real I know we're getting to another film here but it, it sits really strangely alongside the other unkindness of a lot of the humour. Same with the relationship he has with his son. Yeah. I mean, that 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 relationship between Dr. Evil, Scott, and also with Mini-Me um, is really weird and awkward and, and also seems very real. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where Scott essentially become by the end of the franchise, Scott is essentially his father. He's more like his father than his father is. They, in fact, go on Jerry Springer in a later <laughs> film as well, which... Yeah. Yeah. Remember Jerry Spear. Um, <laughs> Thank goodness they don't do that trash anymore. Oh, but but uh, but I mean that is a very complex relationship, and, and I mean you know there's got to be elements there that this this I think is more of a love letter to his father than um, so I married an axe murderer was. I mean you know the accents and stuff that you picked up on that. This nod back to his own family's heritage. His father, his mum and dad were both from Liverpool. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you know, he grew up in that culture of the '60s and, and everything else. Even though he's living in Canada, and and this is in a way, these are the films that he's re- referencing back to the films and the culture that his that his parents enjoyed. Yeah. This is him reaching out to them, even though they're no longer there. Um, and you know, I've mentioned it, I think, before on on the show. You know, Mike Myers and Peter Sellers, they are doing the same kind of thing, and that becomes very obvious by the fourth film, by the third film, where he is playing four characters. Yeah, that is a Peter Sellers-esque um, yeah. kind of domination of a film yeah. and also really taxing for a performer. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, uh, although actually I watch, I mean, you see Goldmember and Goldmember, I, he's, I watch him on screen, I think that's not Mike Myers, that's somebody else, but he's Goldmember no. as well. Yeah. You know, which again is a, a, another racial parody. Oh, there's no pleasing you, Mr. Powers. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of want to get into the trilogy now at length because I think that there is an awful lot to be teased out of them. Because... We're going to have to revisit with the trilogy, I think. Yeah. yeah. So there you go, listeners. If, if you... <laughs> what, what way we'll destroy two and three, I don't know. But... I won't destroy them. You no. two will probably destroy yeah, Ben's going to be the lone voice of, <laughs> please fight. stop being horrible about the films that I love. Yeah. But, I mean, I love this film, I, I but I... I Rewatched it with an acute awareness that there was stuff within them that made me sit back and go, mm. you know. Uh, yeah, I watched them when I was younger, and I watched them. Well, I watched it again, uh-huh. and nothing, nothing. In it <laughs> not changed. <laughs> I just liked it. Like, oh, I, 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 just, I don't know. That could be just. That could be just me. Really. It could be. Um, it, it's hard to know how, how to come at these things. I mean, I, I think I'm so baffled by the amount of references within the films that, that sometimes I just get lost in that. Yeah. He's a very intelligent filmmaker. Yeah. I don't think his humour is always as intelligent as his filmmaking, but he's a very intelligent, very informed filmmaker. I, I, I mean, I, I still hope that they do number four. Do you? Mm-hmm. I would love a number four. Okay. I mean, obviously, we have lost Vern Troyer in yeah. the last couple of years. <laughs> Mini Me is, again, one of my favourite characters in the series. But, I mean, we, we still have Scott, and, and that'll be fun. And Well, yeah, you see, you've got Scott, and then you've got Dr. Evil and Austin Powers being united mm-hmm. at the end of the third one when they realise the brothers, and they're... they're good with each other at the, at the yeah. moment we still have Michael Caine in the world you know yeah. um, at, the yeah. time of, at the time of recording this anyway um, you know we've, we've still got Michael Caine who whilst he says he's, he's not really doing any films unless something's really interesting yeah. could still come out we still have Michael York who you know I mean, exposition Michael York I, I probably should touch on this there is a kind of irony that you know you've got Austin Powers you've got Mike Myers playing that role who's sort of the unsexy version of it Michael, Michael York was the epitome of the sexy man back in the 60s like he was that dashing young hero in, in, in sort of films that he did things like Logan's Run he's in the Three Musketeers I think he's still got it too there you go yeah. I don't know who you're talking about 
Basil Exposition. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, he, he, he's very limited in his actual involvement. He seems quite stilted at times, but he's very much part of, of, of the 60s generation. He would have been the Austin Powers type back in the day. Uh, we will tease out more of the Austin Powers in, in films to come, but overall, are you going to watch them again? Yeah, I will. I will always watch them. I'll watch them till I die. Yeah, I haven't seen two and three in quite some time. Um, and there are some sequences in it that I really enjoy that I was disappointed not to find were in uh, uh, the first film. So I need to watch them and see those sequences. Okay, well, it sounds like we've got a couple more podcasts on the way on this as well. Um, so if you haven't, I do recommend you pop back and, and listen to our Casino Royale podcast as well. Because I think between the two, they make a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah. And as much as Casino Royale can ever be said to make sense. <laughs> um, so as ever, uh, you've been listening to Ben Simpson. Uh, goodbye. Dr. Rachel Kelly. Goodbye. And uh, me, Robert J.E. Simpson. You will find us on social media. We are everywhere like a rash. Uh, we are on Twitter. I thought you were going to say we're everywhere like the coronavirus. <laughs> that will date this episode so much. We're everywhere, like COVID-19. Like the, like the rash that covers Austin Powers after one of his shagadelic sessions. Ooh! Um, yeah, I'm, I'm being outlined. So, yes, we uh, you will find us on Twitter and Facebook as CinePunked. You will find us on Instagram as CinePunked Film. And we've got a website, www.cinepunked.com. Hopefully you have already discovered how to download more of our episodes of the podcast. Do subscribe. And if you enjoy what you've heard, leave us a review. Um, and do feel free to interact with us on any of our social media, on any of our episodes. We will happily have a chat with you about them there. Uh, until the next time. Farewell. Groovy, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Do I make you horny, baby? Yeah. Throw me a frickin' bone here. There we go. <laughs> How about no? <laughs> One million dollars. Get in my belly. Hey, Dr. Evil. You keep your money, and I'll have your baby. From the moment I heard Frau said I had a clone, I knew that very moment that I'd never be alone. An evil doctor shouldn't speak a lot about his feelings. My hurt and my pain don't make me too appealing. I wish Scott would look up to me, run the business of the family, have an evil empire just like his dear old dad, give him the love and the things I ever had. And I can't remember the rest. Oh, well, that's just not good enough. Oh...